as we continue our journey, looking at the journey of Abraham through life, as we have seen so many moments when Abraham faced a test and he didn't always come through with flying colors. Well, I will never forget my last formal exam of my academic career. It was not a true and false, multiple choice, uh, essay kind of test. Instead, it was a defense of this, my dissertation. Uh, now, don't be overwhelmed at the size. I actually used too heavy a stock paper, so, you know. It was the culmination of several years of formal study in systematic theology and church history. And I will confess to you, when I walked into the room of five professors, two of whom I really didn't know that well, I was a bit anxious. Have you ever heard of the fraud syndrome? It's that idea in your brain with, oh no, they're going to find me out. They're finally going to figure out I don't belong here. And I sit down and I look, and that's kind of what I was feeling. It was beating a rhythm in my brain. Fraud, fraud, fraud. But as the defense progressed, I calmed down and started to breathe even more normally because I suddenly became aware I was ready for the defense. I had worked hard at gathering my data, putting it into research form, and I calmed down because I realized I really knew my material. I was answering questions that they were asking and I wasn't stuttering and that was very exciting to me. But what if I had been wrong? What if I weren't ready? What if I failed in presenting my case? Theoretically, I, at New Orleans Baptist, I would have been given one chance at a rewrite. They wouldn't have to do that, but that was the normal process. Now, if I had failed, it would have been very embarrassing. It would have hurt me deeply. But in all likelihood, I would be given another chance. But in the greatest test of all that Abraham faced, a test given by God himself, the stakes were much higher than needing a rewrite. Had Abraham failed this test, it had ramifications that touched on the very covenant of God. So we're going to listen to the word, and it's a long text, but I ask you, to, if you will, if you can, stand, if you're able, as we take a look at the greatest test that Abraham would ever face. It is Genesis 22. 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. 
When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have withheld, uh, you have not withheld from me, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. In our text, God put Abraham to the test. Now the King James Version uses the word that God tempted Abraham. Well, we know from the book of James that we are told God tempts no one. Now this Hebrew word is similar to the word that is used by James the Greek word in the New Testament. It can mean temptation or it can mean a test. Here it clearly means a test. And God's actual purpose can be seen in that opening statement. Everything that's about to transpire is a test. And when we recognize what God asked Abraham to do, then we need to realize something. We need to remember an important truth. Every child of God will face tests in this life. And those tests all are designed to lead us to a very important decision that we must make. 
Now, what exactly is that decision? You're going to have to wait a little bit. You're going to have to wait, but the answer to that question is wrapped up in several elements that take place in what we're told in our text. And so we're going to take a look at those elements. And we begin. The first element of our decision is a commitment to really listen to our Lord. Now I'm going to pick, up on, pick on my part of the human race because I recognized it a long time ago that men, we have a tendency to look like we're listening. Uh, this is something I warn couples about in premarital counseling. We're sitting there and we're nodding our head, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And our mind is somewhere else. And then there's a change in inflection. And you suddenly realize she just asked me a question. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. And we've been caught. So we're talking about really listening to God. Not nodding our head, but hearing. When you look at what happened here, Abraham received a command from God that challenged the very promise God had given his servant. The very promise. And there is a three-part test that God is giving Abraham. There are three elements in this element. First we hear, take your son, your only son. No, now God did not forget Ishmael. Abraham has another son, but as far as the covenant is concerned, Isaac is the only son. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. By the way, in case you like to know these things, this is the first time the word love is used in the word of God. This son that you love, the second part, go to the area of Moriah. Andrew Stein has noted that the place named Moriah occurs only one other place in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 3.1, where it is described Mount Moriah as the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, for a long, long time, scholars just made an assumption that they was talking about Mount Moriah. But some came along and said, no, that doesn't fit. We're told it was a three-day journey, and if they took a three-day journey, it would lead them far past Jerusalem. From Beersheba to Jerusalem, it's not a three-day journey. But Simon points out that's misunderstanding the statement three days. It's not a marker of the journey. Day number one is when God gives Abraham the command. Day number two is when Abraham gets ready and starts on the on the journey. Then day number three is when they reach their destination. And he sees the mountain and God reveals this is the place. This is the place. And then the third element. When you get there, offer your son Isaac as a burnt offering. Now unlike my, I knew the defense of my dissertation was coming. I had years to know that and worry about it. Abraham has not given any warning whatsoever. We end with him, uh, with his situation with Abimelech and the treaty and all that stuff. And then we're told sometime after. Now sometime after is a very vague term. 
but it is referring to the, the situation in the events of chapters 20 and 21. Now, it has been argued, and if you, if you look at children's illustrations, uh, Isaac usually looks like a little boy. But it's been pointed out, in all likelihood, Isaac is a teenager at this point. And the clue to that is in the fact that Abraham loads all of the wood for the burnt offering on his son. A little boy is not going to be able to carry that burden. So, we are given no explanation. Here we go. Abraham and his teenage son heading off. We have no explanation about how Abraham felt about this. God tells him at a nighttime event, and I've often wondered, how could he sleep? Did he sleep? Did he toss and turn all night long? Was he trying to make bargains with God? He, he's done that in the past. Let Eliezer be my heir. Did he try? We're not told. All that we know for sure from this text and this text alone. In the morning, he got things ready and he started the journey to Moriah. In other words, Abraham listened to God. Not in kind of the vague way where you hear the words. He listened and obeyed. That's where I kind of draw the line between hearing and listening. Listening involves, okay, I know what you want me to do. Now, Alan has already alluded to this, but folks, there are many things throughout God's Word that are hard for us to hear. There's a lot of stuff that uh, we sometimes might wish God didn't say. There, there, just give me, let me give you just a few examples that will make this clear. But folks, there are so many more. How about that thing, love your enemies? And Lord Jesus told us that. Love your enemies. You've heard, love your friends and hate your enemies. It says, even the pagans do that. Love your enemies. That's not very easy. Well, how about turn the other cheek? If I were to walk down the aisle over to my friend Carl, and cold cock him on the right side. I'm not sure what would happen next. And we've known each other a long time. Turn the other cheek. How about this? How uncomfortable does this make us? Be holy, for I am holy. Micah, in chapter 6, verse 8. Answering his own question, what does God require? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To really do the right thing and fight for the right thing. To love mercy. Kind of involved that whole loving your enemies thing. To walk humbly before your God. And then in Luke 9.23, Jesus spelled it out. 
what is expected of all of his disciples. Luke 9.23 If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's easy for me to say I'm willing to die for Jesus. It's easy because no one's pointing a gun at my head right now. But I can guarantee you if I'm not living for Jesus, I am highly unlikely to die for him. You see, every one of these things run contrary to our human nature, doesn't it? And that human nature is still battling to control our lives. That's why so often you hear in the New Testament the idea, put away the old man. We may not like that there are hard sayings within the Word of God. We may not want to hear them, but we are not free to dismiss them. See, my friends, we need to decide if we are willing to really listen to the Word in order to truly follow God. Because I've got to listen to the Word. I've got to truly hear what God is saying. Because God shares Himself and His will within that Word. And because of that, we're not free to be spiritual Scarlett O'Hara's and say, I'll think about that tomorrow. God confronts us with His Word and expects our decision to hear Him and obey when He confronts us. We need to give our hearts over to receiving of God's Word in the very depths of our being. I apologize if you get tired of me saying that the Word is essential to us. I apologize not because I'm saying it, but because I have to. Peter told his readers, I'm going to keep sharing this message with you as long as I'm in this life. We have to be willing to hear. And when we're ready to listen to God, then we're ready to face the next element of our decision. Being willing to listen lets us know that the second element of our decision is a commitment to trust our Lord. Trust Him. Trust that what He's saying is for our good, is for our growth, is for our purpose. And when we look at Abraham, it's crucial that we understand what he was doing at this moment. You see, Abraham chose to trust God even though the command seemed to challenge everything he had been through. It took 25 years for Isaac to finally come. Abraham has left Ur at 75. He now is 100. He now has his son. And maybe at least 13 years later, Isaac is is going to be burned according to the plan of God. This test challenged the prophet, uh, the, the promise of God. The death of Isaac was a devastating thing even to try to comprehend. But Abraham had come to a place where he trusted God. 
which I believe is shown in his command to his servants. He told them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Now, there are some people who have said, this is just to alleviate the suspicions of the servants and the boy because there's no sacrifice. I think something more is happening here. Abraham had come to a place where he truly believed God could be trusted. God had shown him that he could be trusted over and over again. What did he trust? In Genesis 21 verse 12, God tells Abraham, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Abraham is confident that God was going to keep his promise. It's been asked, how could this be with Isaac dead? Now Abraham didn't know exactly what was going to happen or how God would handle this situation. But he did believe that when he came down from that mountain, Isaac would be with him. And Clyde Francisco points out, if Isaac had to die, it would be but a prelude to another miracle from God. If that knife plunges into his son, Abraham just trusts God's going to take care of it. And inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, the writer of Hebrews gave insight to Abraham's heart. In that great passage known as the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 listen what the Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Notice, God was content that Abraham offered Isaac by putting him on that pile. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his own and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Knowing that God said, Isaac is the heir. Knowing that God said, you need to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham's heart of faith said, I'll do it. And I will trust that God will raise him up. The knowledge that God would keep his word helped Abraham to trust that God would provide a miracle to make sure it happened. Now back to us. We too easily fall back from trust when we are confronted with the challenges that entail the life of faith. I was sharing with someone earlier this week that uh, I had an 18-year-old boy come into my office. I was no longer his pastor. It's back when I was in Texas. I was at a church several miles down the road from where I once served, and he came into my office. I first met Jerry when he was 10. And he said, Brother Danny, why have people lied to me? And I said, well, well about what? He says, they've been telling me if I, if I believe in Jesus, everything will be good. Oh, everything will be great. And I looked at him and said, Jerry, you never heard me say that. And he looked at me and said, you're right. And I avoided saying, of course. 
Folks, if we allow our faith to become equated with the so-called American dream, that trusting Jesus means success, ease, freedom from trouble, a life of happiness and no pain, we've lost sight of the reality. No one on earth is exempt from problems, troubles, and tests. That includes the people of God. And again, just open your Bible and read it, and you'll see how many face tests that are so amazing. In our responsive reading today, from James, we heard James say, and the first time I ever heard this verse, I had to read it again. I was a teenager. Actually, I had to read it several times, I think. Count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials and tests. But James isn't the only New Testament writer who said that. Essentially, in First Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Peter echoed James's admonition. Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice while you, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kind of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says when you're going through trials, it's like refining a precious metal. And all of the dross is burned out. All that holds on to us. All that the impurities of our lives fall to the hand of God's grace and mercy in the midst of the trial. And we will be proven our faith to be greater than gold or silver. Folks, we need to trust God even when such trust is difficult. Protestant reformer Martin Luther said of trials, such is the nature of of our trials, that while they last, we cannot see the end. Isn't that the truth? We never can see the end. We may not understand all that God is doing in our lives in the time of trusting. It is also true that we may not always know where we will come out at the trial finally reaches its end. But we can know this. We can know the promises of God I will not leave you alone. My grace is sufficient for you. And the promise that he loves us with a love that will not let go. Folks, God is worthy of our trust. And when we learn to trust God at his word, when we learn to believe God will accomplish in us what he wants, we open ourselves up to the last element of our decision. The third element of our decision is a commitment to act 
upon that trust in our God. Listen to Him. Trust that what He says is true. And then act. Do something about it. Step out on faith. Commit yourself to follow what He shows. You see, Abraham's trust gave him the strength to actively face the greatest test of his life. His heart must have burned when Isaac looked at him and said, Father, where's the lamb? Even as he told his son, God will provide the lamb. Folks, what Abraham knew that at that moment Isaac did not, in Abraham's mind, Isaac was the lamb. Still, when he climbed Mount Moriah, there is no record of any hesitancy in his actions. He takes the wood, he builds the altar. He bound his son, and he readied the knife. Now, before I deal with what happened next, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, let me draw your attention to Isaac for just a moment. I'm 65 years of age at this point in my life. And I told you a long time ago, if you ever see me running, look to see what's chasing me. I will walk. I sometimes will put in seven to ten miles a day through walking and biking, not on a stationary. I don't run. And I hate to think what would happen if I had to run and chase Logan. Or even worse, if I had to run and chase my grandson, Ollie. If scholars are right, if Isaac is a teenager, this means at the very least, Abraham is 113 years old. And a 13-year-old kid who is able to carry all of the wood for the offering, Abraham could not have bound him Abraham could not have put him on that altar unless Isaac willingly accepted the reality, I am the lamb that God has provided. Folks, I believe Isaac did not run down the hill, the mountain, because he trusted his father And he too had come to the place of trusting in the Lord. And so Abraham, it may not look obviously, obvious in our text, but there are two men of faith on that mountain. He let his father bind him because he trusted. So Abraham is now ready to plunge the knife into Isaac when the angel of the Lord stopped him. Now, for those of you who have been through this journey with me so far, I shared with you that expression, the angel of the Lord, is what is known as a theophany. A theophany is God's appearance in some kind of physical form so that he can directly encounter a human being without killing him. Because if God shows up in all of his glory, you can't look at God and live. So the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day are examples of theophany. The angel of the Lord comes and speaks, calls him, Abraham, Abraham. Please notice that the angel speaks as God. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your, from me your son, your only son. Now what did, this, what did the angel mean? Now I know. If this is God, did God somehow not know how this test was going to end up? Of course not. But the word that is translated in know is a word that carries the idea of knowledge by experience. God always knew what was in the heart of Abraham. What Abraham does is confirm what God already knew about him. That he truly feared God above all else. That nothing was more loved in Abraham's life than the Lord. And maybe even more importantly, Abraham now knows this. Abraham, the man who passes his wife off as his sister twice. Abraham that goes to a handmaid to have a a son uh, to try to help God along. Abraham that messes up so many times is now at a place where he can finally face the greatest test of his life And Abraham knows, nothing is more important to me than my God. At that point, it's almost as if God opens Abraham's eyes. Now it's possible that God created a ram and put it in the thicket. A possibility that's more likely is the ram had always been there. God had already prepared the sacrifice. Abraham just couldn't see it. And now God kind of opens his eyes and he sees this ram. And he goes and gets it and he sacrifices the ram as a burnt offering. Not because God told him to. Did you notice God did not say sacrifice that ram over there? Abraham just gets it and out of a heart of gratitude for the grace that has just been given himself and his son, he gladly sacrifices to God. And he names a place, Yahweh Yirah. The Lord will provide. And Moses writes, even to this day, we say on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So what are we learning here? Faith without action is empty. It's empty. In his epistle, the brother of the Lord, James, said, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, and going through verse 24, he makes a statement. Somebody comes to your house naked and hungry, and you say, oh, I'm praying for you. Have a good day. He says, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, and this is where it's connected. You foolish man... Do you, not, do you want evidence of faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now what James is arguing is not that Abraham was saved because he obeyed, but the fact that Abraham obeyed showed that he believed. It was the proof that his faith was real. That it wasn't an empty gesture. It wasn't, oh, I believe you, God. He's willing to take the hard yes, Lord. Uh, The great 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, we believe that men are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. They are saved by faith without works, but not by faith which is without works. So folks, we need to understand. We can hear the Word of God all the time. And it not affect our lives. That's why James also said, be doers of the Word and not work hearers only. When we listen and we know what God wants of us, Be my witnesses. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And the list goes on and on. We say yes. We must heed the call to do what God calls us to do. Now, I'm not arguing for works-based salvation. I'm not saying work really hard. You got saved by grace through faith and now you got to work hard to keep it. No, I'm saying we need, we seek to obey God if our hearts are where they need to be. Not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven. None of us will ever do that. We seek to obey and follow His path out of hearts filled with gladness that our God, our Father, calls us His children. His love, His grace, gives birth to our hearts that long to please the Father who loves us. God is calling us to be His people. God is calling us to listen to Him. God is calling us to trust Him. And God is calling us to act on that trust. So, when we add up all of these elements, what is the decision we are called upon to make? And I don't believe this is a one-time decision in life. Just as Abraham took steps of faith, that it eventually brought him to the place of his greatest test that he passed with flying colors. Our journey with Christ is a step of faith. So what is the decision we are called on to make? Love God supremely. Love God supremely. If that be true in our lives, our lives will begin to mirror the Christ whom we serve. If we love God first and foremost, our lives will become what they are meant to be. Now, you may shrink back. When I talk about loving God supremely, I know that people will immediately begin wondering, but what about the people I love? If I give God my supreme love, how will that affect them? Will it mean that I love them less? Will it mean that I... I don't share in their joys and so forth. If all my focus is on God, well, folks, 
Um, C.S. Lewis, at the end of a very long letter, wrote, When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are first put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. And so today, each one of us who call God Father, each one of us who have received the gift of salvation that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us are called to love God supremely by listening to Him. And folks, that entails a commitment to His Word. We love God supremely by trusting the Lord that we listen to. Knowing that whatever He asks, as difficult as it may sound, is for our good. To lead us where we should be. And then we love God supremely when we act on the trust that we have in the Lord. And so I ask, today are you willing to put God first? As a child of God. Folks, this is a message focused on people of faith. This is a message calling us as God's children to trust God and love Him completely. Now, the call to salvation for someone who doesn't know our Lord is a, is a call to trust that what God has provided is real. But Abraham was not a pagan who just stepped out of the book and was ready to sacrifice his son because God told him. He was a man of faith. We, as God's children, need to love Him supremely and that will show in our lives. No relationship we can hold can become all that it can be if we refuse to put first things first. And our lives will never reflect the light of Jesus Christ in the way they are meant to if we're not willing one day at a time, to tell our God, I love you, and I don't want to hold anything back. Take me. Let me follow you. Not hide from your word. Not shrink back from trusting you when the times get hard. And definitely not sitting in a pew comfortably, wishing somebody else had been there to hear the message because they needed it. We are called to love God with all that we are. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads before the Lord. If you are here today, no one looking around. Please honor that, people. If you are here today and you want to say, 
Danny, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to love God with everything that is in me. I want to quit playing games. I want to quit holding things back. I want to love the Lord my God. I would like to pray for you. Would you slip your hand up and say, I want to follow God and love Him completely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will give you the opportunity, if you would like, I will be waiting here at the front to pray with you individually. But folks, the call to love God supremely is a call that belongs to each one of us. And until we're really to say, willing to say, God, here I am, do with me as you will. We can't expect God to move in us as freely as he wants.